Christopher Lee, thank you so much for being on Food Unscripted. Not a problem. It's so nice to be here. It's so nice to be chatting with you after uh, I've watched all of your episodes and, and oh, that's uh, so it's kind. really an honor to, to be on here with you now. So I feel like I just wanted to kind of go back in time a little bit and learn a little bit more about you um, and kind of pick your brain about the transition that you went through from playing at the Toronto Philharmonia that was from like 91 to 2013. Um, mm -hmm. And how was that time with them? And then what ultimately led you to kind of do a lot more focus on masterclasses and recitals, which you're really well known for today? Um, going back. Yeah, I was, I was very lucky, I think, very fortunate that I started playing in that orchestra when I was very young. Although these days it's, it doesn't seem so. I think I was, I want to say like 23, 24, something like that. That's still young. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I still feel like that. Um, and uh, it was great. Um, that, that was a weird period in sort of the early 90s uh, type of thing. I started the flute quite late. I mean, I started in high school, um, but I sort of fiddled around for fun for most of the time there, and I didn't really take it seriously. Uh, and it was my last year of high school, I thought, you know, I remember my mother saying, I don't care what you go to university for, but you're going to university. <laughs> like, okay, well, how about music? <laughs> um, so I, I had no clue that one could do that in university or, or even that there was such a thing as a, a career in music. You know, where I'm from, growing up in the Caribbean, we had no exposure to it at all. And frankly, the first time I heard an orchestra was on a cassette tape, and, and it was like my last year of high school. So, wow. of that. Um, so I frantically started taking lessons and so on. And um, I, I did an extra year. To prepare for the auditions for university, somehow or other, I got in, and um, I just sort of went along that path. And then, um, a couple of years into that, I was thinking it's maybe not for me. Um, being in university, I mean, uh, I wasn't. I didn't think I was getting enough playing experience. So of course we, we had our private lessons and things like that, but um, I didn't think it was a, a really proper training ground for me. Um, and at the same time, I happened to be playing in one of the military bands here. So, um, oh, interesting. You know, I was kind of gigging around with them and, yeah. and doing that and learning how to sight read, on <laughs> and it was a really good ex experience doing that. So, I left the university and and. Uh, I went to the conservatory, did an orchestral training program for a year, which was great because every day playing in, in orchestra. And then um, did the audition for uh, the Philharmonia and for whatever reason, they decided to give me a shot. Um, looking back on it, I think, well, <laughs> how? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. Um, so started there, and uh, the orchestra went through a lot of changes over the years, and um, but it was really good experience. So I basically kind of learned on the job. Yeah. Um, 
and I had a I think it was a, like schooling in its own way, you know, like another it was, yeah. it really was. And um, the, the people in my section were much more experienced than I, and so they were great sort of teachers to every step of the way, and they were amazing people, just so kind. So, <clears throat> um, I sort of got my feet wet um, that way, and um, I guess didn't screw up too much. <laughs> but, yeah, they kept you around, so you must have been doing right. <laughs> You know, um, it was very interesting times. But um, then that went on for quite a while, and it, actually, it amazed me how many years had flown by. I yeah. hadn't really noticed it. Um, but uh, there were sort of economic problems at the time, and the orchestra eventually basically went bankrupt and, and folded. And I remember I sort of, it was a gradual process, but the writing was on the wall, and you could sort of see it. And I thought, what do I really want to do? Yeah. What I always really wanted to do. And I realized it was to play with the flute and piano rep. Um, and I always had that plan in mind that one day I would stop with the orchestra and, and go about this path. But that one day never had a date, you know. <laughs> so after twenty something years, it was right. uh, it was made. The decision was made for me. Yeah. And I thought, well, now's a good time to give it a shot and see what happens. And you know, like I said, I've been very fortunate to have wonderful connections and friends and so on who um, supported that and um, really opened up things to help me have uh, at least a chance of going that route and it's yeah. been wonderful it's been absolutely fantastic like it's always what I wanted to do and um, so you know when you're sort of in your element you feel really comfortable mm -hmm. and that's kind of what I like to do I like <laughs> friend of mine calls it the perks of the job, you know, the travel yeah. and, um, and uh, going to new places all the time. And I know that sounds amazing, <laughs> but in reality, it's more like dealing with airports and airlines and yep. like, okay, I wish I had somebody to do that for right. me. Because... Glamorous stuff. <laughs> well, I wonder too, if you kind of had a unique perspective and were able to give some advice to, you know, young people or to your students as they, a lot of people, have, young people have jobs and then the pandemic hit and orchestras um, went on pause, jobs kind of dried up for a little while there. So yeah. I wonder if you kind of going through that in Toronto and experiencing what it's like to kind of be forced into finding new opportunities gave you um, the perspective to share some advice with people. Absolutely, I think it's really, much easier these days um, because we have you know this magical internet thing yeah that has opened the door for a whole lot of you know, people and and opportunities that some of them we haven't even thought about yet i'm sure um but because of that it's it's a magical time where i think people can do anything they actually dreamed of yeah kind of cool the caveat to that is that whatever it is has to be good yeah so you know let's 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 break it down into a commercial thing but the product has to be good just right. a very good quality whatever it is you're doing but i think that's fairly easy to achieve if you believe in it yeah 
Um, and, and when you do something with your heart instead of your brain, it usually works out okay. And uh, I think during the pandemic, it forced a lot of people to stop and take stock of, of what it is they really wanted to do. And, you know, I had a lot of colleagues that left music and I speak to them now and, um, you know, now that things are basically starting to open up again and I say, you know, are you coming back? And, and some of them are no. They've now found what they always wanted to do. Yeah. It's weird, you know? Yeah. It doesn't have to be in music. It could be in anything. And I think it's, it's the silver lining is that's, that's fantastic for them. Um, for a musician, I mean, hopefully we made it through. <laughs> but, um, you know, these things are coming back. Uh, I think if you've used the opportunity during the, time, the lockdowns and stuff like that to keep in shape, basically, and, um, or even improve because it was some good time to practice and so on, mm -hmm. then it's a really exciting time for them, for those people too. Yeah. Um, I don't think a pandemic, well, it's, it's shown it now, it, it, it may shut things down for a while, but it cannot absolutely extinguish that human passion for artistic endeavors of any sort. You know, it's just impossible to do. Very true. So I want to just basically keep at it. <laughs> yeah, just consistency um, and staying inspired. So where yeah. you draw your inspiration from, I know um, you studied with WIB, right? And and you have this connection through Altus Flutes as well. You play in Altus. Um, so can you share more about his legacy, um, kind of what you're going through at his passing and, and what you remember about him as a person, as a player? Mm, wow. Yeah, Wib. Um, I don't know when I met Wib the first time. I can't remember. Um, I was very, very young. And... Uh, I remember going to a master class that he was giving and I wasn't playing, I was sitting in the audience. And um, then he he was explaining something to whoever was playing and, and decided to get out his flute and, and you know demonstrate. But so he put his flute together and he played one note just to, I guess to see if the alignment was right or whatever, you know, the test yeah. note that we all do. And I thought this was the most amazingly beautiful sound in the world. and. He just knocked it off like that. So immediately I was like, how do you do this? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, then we spent time together and stuff like that. And um, I remember he was always one to, he, he always wanted joy in everything. And sometimes, you know, in a lesson that could mean you got very little work done. Mm -hmm. Um, it was, it could degenerate into storytelling or um, <laughs> uh, any number of things, but it, it was always, I think, with a purpose now to, to sort of put people in the right space, in the right frame of mind um, to be able to create, you know, uh, because if, if, you're, if your mind is somewhere, is not focused on creating the most beautiful phrase or something like that, then it just, you just can't do it. You know, we, we can't follow instructions and do it because there's that extra little spice that's going to be missing. Um, so I remember those times most of all, um, which is strange, but that was a long time ago. And, um, and of course, Michi, uh, yeah. 
due to his wife was fantastic as well, a wonderful teacher. Um, uh, you also talk a lot about the art of the recital. Um, can you share a little bit more about uh, what you mean by that? Yeah, it is an art. I remember the first flute recital I ever saw. Um, and I was actually still in high school. And um, this, it was a, a program called the Victorian Musical Evening. I forget the name right now. Um, and it featured two flutists and piano. So one of the flutists um, was a lady called Margot Rydell uh, here in, from here in Toronto. Uh, who is incidentally a former Rib student as well. Um, and then the other was a gentleman who we all know is Albert Spell. And um, I'll, there's a funny story about that. But anyway, I'll tell you that in a minute. Um, and Albert, obviously also, uh, you know, heavily influenced by Rib. Um, and they played. And I remember my impression being when, when uh, they walked out, Oh, the flute is so small. Like, I was a little guy. I'm still a little guy. And, and the flute to me is like this huge clunker thing. Um, and it came, they came out and it looked so elegant. And it was, for me, the perfect balance of sound, a piano and a flute. Everything was so crisp and clear and, and, and um, to me, a really high form of art without any artifice or without any kind of extra things needed to happen. Like even in opera, you know, you need yeah. your costumes, you need your staging, you need all these other things to happen. But just you and a piano is, to me, the most clean, I guess, I don't know, elegant way of yeah. presenting, presenting music. And it always sort of stuck with me. But over the years, I've kind of been gotten to the point where I'm I'm usually this is like flutes on scripture right so I can say anything right <laughs> I'm usually I usually get really bored at flute recitals um and for for several different reasons but um I think presentation is one <coughs> and I thought there has to be a better way of doing this that can actually connect with the audience a little bit more. And I looked around at my other colleagues, not in classical music, but in other forms of music. And I, I looked at how they performed, you know, jazz musicians, they're up there and it's like everybody in the audience is relaxed and they're bopping along. Right. Um, of course that happens in pop and rock, every other concert and stuff like that. So why is it we don't look at that in classical, quote unquote classical music and take some lessons from it. So um, I thought, well, the first thing that I noticed that was a hindrance was the music stand. To me, I saw a lot of people reading off the score, reading music while they were performing. Um, and that's where their communication went right into the stand. Yeah, kind of like a barrier. It is. It's a yeah. huge barrier. And it's kind of like going you know, just watching somebody read a book. Yeah. Like, uh, right. You know, as opposed to an actor on stage who's delivering the lines and at you. And I thought that maybe we can change. <laughs> so, 
Um, so definitely, for instance, memorization of the program has sure. to be there, and um, you know, as as best as possible. And I think this all uh, also ties in very nicely to um, the whole musician, which is uh, the organization yeah. that you're a co-founder of and on faculty with. So, um, what was the inspiration behind that organization, and how has it evolved over the years? It was here in Toronto, and we were having a, a flute convention. At and we were all sitting around the dinner table talking about our schooling experience and um, realizing at the same time that it was, um, even though most of the rest of them went through all the way up to their final doctorates and stuff, um, we were all realizing that none of us felt that we got what we needed from it um, and that we wanted to try and do something about that to for future students. So uh, we realized that we all had these different life experiences and, and um, different other um, sort of uh, abilities uh, related to but outside of music. And it was almost a, an instantaneous thing. We're like, well, that's, that's a curriculum. Okay, we can form that. No problem. We can do this and do that and the other. Um, and that's basically how it started. We could, we could you know, offer all these other things that we felt we, we were lacking uh, in, in our education and um, do it much more easily than trying to rework an entire institution. Uh, these things right. well, move like and now you, uh, so, Yeah, now you can supplement other uh, institutions and their programs by doing what you do, which is yeah. traveling and, and having seminars and workshops and going to different yeah. colleges and universities. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. It's, it's um, we'll go for a few days somewhere and uh, deliver the, the program, um, which is always customized to whatever that institution feels is their students need. And I'm really happy to say that um, most of the places we go to now, actually looking at their curriculums and stuff, have really branched out and um, considered other non-direct musical things. Also, the community kind of came behind you uh, in 2018. You went into the hospital. You suffered a heart attack at uh, actually at an NFA convention, right, in Orlando. <laughs> yes, um, because of NFA. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> unrelated. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? That that's uh, scary and the impact that that kind of had on you afterwards and on your performance yeah. career um, and your life. Yeah, that was an unexpected thing, obviously, who expects this, but right. um, it's weird because uh, part of my memory from that time is a little, it's either got gaps or, or it doesn't exist. Um, so I kind of depend on what other people tell me of, of things that happened. Um, but yeah, I was uh, really ill. It was the first day of NFA was in Orlando and um, I hadn't even gone to the convention center or hotel at the time. We were just in our Airbnb, uh, luckily. And um, I remember going, we went for Starbucks in the morning and um, then we were gonna go back and get our flutes and head out. But I wasn't feeling great. Um, so I thought, yeah, it's probably just because I arrived late at night. I just needed to have a nap. 
So I said, I told my friends who were staying at the Airbnb, I said, you know, I'll just stay and catch them later. They should go. And one of them uh, decided, oh, he'll wait. So I woke up or something. Well, fine. That was the last thing I remember. So <laughs> um, according to him, what happened next was that he came up to came into the room to check on me and I was already um, I was on laying on the bed having a nap but I wasn't breathing or anything um, so he flew into panic mode and started whatever and called the ambulance etc who fortunately were very close by yeah and so was the hospital so um, they got me to the hospital really really quickly and uh, so it was basically cardiac arrest um, uh, which is now I know different from a heart attack. So the heart attack, like the first step, the second step is the where the heart stops. Um, so uh, they revived me after a while. It was about half an hour, um, and then I was in a coma for four days, five days, something like that. So yeah, I completely missed the, the convention. Um, and when I woke up, <laughs> I had no idea what had happened. And yeah. But I did remember that I was supposed to do a concert. And oh my God, I'm going to be late. <laughs> oh gosh, that's <laughs> the least of your Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know. It's yeah. just what popped into my head. Right. Um, so the recovery from that was, it took a, a bit of time. And um, I think I was in, I stayed in that hospital for another uh, two weeks, maybe three weeks, and then came back to Toronto, uh, straight into the hospital here um, for a couple of weeks, I think, I'm not sure. Um, and there were other sort of complications that happened at the same time. Uh, um, which apparently are quite common, but you know, one of them, you know, my sort of my kidneys had shut down as well. Yeah. Um, so I was on dialysis, and for me that was the one thing that could make me sort of lose hope because I wouldn't be able to travel, I wouldn't be able to go places because you have to have dialysis every other day. But fortunately, after a month or so, they woke up again, which was kind of nice and weird. Um, and so then I, I stopped needing to have dialysis and, and everything was starting to fix itself, basically. But it was interesting, like, um, uh, I, I was a pretty fit person before. And I thought sort of that was a good shield if you will against mm -hmm. illnesses like that but apparently not <laughs> so right. um uh, according to doctors apparently it was because i was fit that i was able to recover quickly but not avoid not it. avoid it so uh, you know now I, I i understand that but um i remember playing or trying to play the flute the first time and uh, it just wasn't happening it nothing couldn't even how long into your how long into your recovery did you kind of have that urge to pick up the flute again and try to play? I had it 
pretty much the day I woke up, wanted to try. Um, but of course, there wasn't any fruits around me. Right. Um, one day, some of my friends um, who were still in Orlando at the time, they came to the hospital to visit. And of course, they were still with NFA, so they had the flute. flute and I thought, well, let me try it. And I couldn't play it. Just didn't. And so that was a bit depressing. Yeah. So it was good to come back, um, but you know there was uh, something missing. As we all know, like when you don't have a, a date in mind to perform something, it's hard to practice. Yeah, of course. Um, and I didn't have that. I had to cancel everything because we didn't yeah. know how long it would be to recover. So um, I, was, I think actually I think it was a whole musician retreat looming. We weren't. Hmm. sure if I was going to be there but it was there and I thought okay by that date I'm going to be able to play this piece it's kind of your goal um, to have in mind so that yeah. was the thing I had to work yeah I had to work forward to and um, so I did and um, yeah it was really hard I mean it was just a little Bach piece but uh, it sort of took everything out and but it felt good to sort of be back, even though it's kind of like half back. Yeah. <laughs> but um, to be back doing something, I wasn't going to do a whole program of anything. But right. Definitely, you know, a few minutes of a piece was fine. Um, and so that really helped. But um, looking back on it now, what changed? Uh, everything changed. Um, um, purpose became a thing. What am I doing? Why? Why? Yeah. And make decisions and making sure that every single thing I do affects somebody else, like in a good way. Yeah. And um, that's always sort of been a driving force. But, um, you know, uh, when I was starting out playing, um, a lot of people gave me chances, which I look back on now and I think, don't know why you did that, but thanks. And I think it's my responsibility now to do the same thing. You feel like you uh, you want to pay it forward? Absolutely. It's like it's an obligation to that, you know, to help in whatever way to make the next bunch of players or whatever uh, sneak their pass out at least a little bit. So I, I try to do that as much as I can with with um, people that I hear, young people that I hear that are that blow me away. Yeah, you've also made a big impact. Um, and I think that's been seen by everyone that, that you work with and that knows you. Um, and thank you for sharing your story here today and for, for being on. It was really great to chat with you and just get to know you a little bit better. Thank you, thank you very yeah. much for having me. Anytime. <laughs>